On a fall night in 1828, an ornate glass carriage pulled up outside of the famous concert hall in Leipzig, Germany. The door opened. This little girl climbed out, and she was sobbing. This was at the Kavaun House, the spot in town. The biggest stars of classical music had played there, Mozart, Weber, you name it. That night, the place was packed with the town's elite, eager to see a new performer. And up those stairs went this little girl, wiping at her tears. There had been a dreadful mistake. The wrong carriage had picked her up at home, and now she was late, and her father was impatiently waiting for her. When she got to him, she was shaken, nervous, and still crying. He told her to calm down. He needed her to pull it together. And she did. Nine-year-old Clara Schumann walked out onto the stage. I'm Jade Simmons, and this is Decomposed. We bring you the stories that have shaped classical music, the heartbreaks, the betrayals, and the acts of sheer genius that changed everything. I'm a pianist and composer. I've played all over the world, but I didn't start at the piano until I was eight, which is like over the hill in the world of classical music. Sounds crazy, but it's true. People in most careers don't start in preschool, but in my industry, it's expected. And it's been that way for centuries. You've heard the stories. Mozart at a piano at three. Beethoven performing at seven. Chopin already composing full scores by that age. A name that doesn't get mentioned often in that conversation. Clara Schumann. If you're thinking Schumann, I know that name. You're probably thinking of Robert Schumann, her husband. He was the popular one, a prolific composer, and even if you don't know the pieces by name, you've probably heard his work. But one of the only reasons you've ever heard of him or his music, that's because of Clara. She made his work possible while composing her own music, too. When I look back at Clara, when I hear her music, I think about how she really was attempting the impossible. And in some ways, she pulled it off. In other ways, history kept her down. This is the story of a woman who was born to play and refused to stop. This is the story of Clara Schumann. Whatever it is that child prodigies have, Clara had it. At five, she could play by ear. She could transpose. She could improvise. Her brain just worked that way. She was her father's pet project for sure. Friedrich Wieck was trying to build a reputation as a piano teacher. And what better way to do that than to turn out another little Beethoven? And if he could do that with his daughter, 
Just imagine what he could do with your son. Friedrich trained Clara for an hour every day, and then she'd practice for at least two more. And this is when she's still seven, eight, nine years old. Her father once bragged that she didn't have time to play with dolls, and especially not with other children. We know a lot about this part of Clara's early musical career because there's a diary that documents all of it. Well, I mean, it's technically her diary, but it was her father writing the entries at first. And he wrote them as if he were Clara. Just listen to this entry. My father, who long had hoped for a change of disposition on my part, observed again today that I am just as lazy, careless, disorderly, disobedient, etc., as ever. Yeah, that's her father writing in her voice in her diary that she's lazy. I mean, talk about mind games. Despite all that supposed laziness and carelessness, though, Clara was an undeniable star. And her resume was stacked. First public performance at nine, first solo concert at 11, then her father took her on the road to Paris. And she was a hit. It's not that no other women played the piano. They did. They just played at home. In private, like it was a party trick. If you were a refined young lady, maybe you could trot out a sonata to impress an eligible bachelor. Knowing how to play the piano meant you were educated and your family was rich enough to shell out for the lessons. I know that sounds like an outdated way to value a woman's worth, but if I'm being honest... I went to school with girls whose families still thought that way. They wanted their daughters to play so they'd seem cultured, not so they would actually perform. Those girls had no plans of ever making it to the stage. But I did. And so did Clara. She was going to play on stage, in public. Scandalous. What Clara was doing was unheard of for the time. You see, there are pretty much only a few reasons a woman should ever be in the spotlight. If you were a queen, an opera singer, or an actress. And actresses definitely had a reputation. Clara defied all that. When she came out on stage, the audiences seemed to forget she wasn't supposed to be there. They poured into the concerts where she played. They raved about her. But here's the brutal truth about prodigies. They grow up. They stop being the adorable little geniuses who can barely reach the keys. How do you make the leap from prodigy to serious musician? Can you? And what's the cost, especially when you're fighting against years and years of tradition that says who can play and who can't? For Clara, there would be no easy answers. While young Clara was racking up the accomplishments, her father was still taking on new music students. Some of them even moved in with the Vieck family, everybody cozy under the same roof. That's how Robert Schumann entered Clara's life. 
She was still just a kid when they first met. He was almost a decade older, and he had an even later start to studying music than I did, definitely later than Clara. Despite that late start, though, he was fantastically talented. Friedrich Wieck took him in as a student and offered him a place in his house. You can see where this is going. Robert bonded with Clara and her brothers. They'd all play charades, he'd dress as a ghost and chase them around the house. He played with them like they were children, because they were. But as young as she was, Clara was also his competition. Friedrich would praise his daughter as she sat at the piano, meanwhile telling Robert that he was playing like a dog. And Friedrich took Clara on tour a lot, meaning he wasn't always around for Robert's lessons. Clara was Friedrich's absolute priority, while Robert was left at home, bored out of his mind doing elementary-level finger exercises. Despite the competitive tension and that age difference again, Robert and Clara grew close. They took long walks, talked endlessly about music. When Clara was 12, she got a letter from Robert that read, I often think of you not as a brother thinks of a sister, nor as a boyfriend thinks of a girlfriend, he wrote, but as a pilgrim before a distant shrine. But Clara's rock star performances, they weren't enough. Not for her father, and not for the expectations of the time. Truly great musicians, the thinking went back then, needed to write their own work. If you didn't compose, you were just two hands at a piano. So Clara, as she always did, rose to the task. Have you ever written music? It is hard. Creating something out of nothing. Pulling an entirely new composition out of the air. Well, it's hard for some of us anyway, but Clara, she turned out this concerto at 16. She performed it back at the Gavan House, surrounded by the city's orchestra. That's 16 years old. Critics were impressed. One wrote that if the name of the female composer were not on the title, one would never think it were written by a woman. That, of course, was a compliment for the time. When I think about Clara, I think about her being caught in this trap. I mean, she was remarkable because she was a woman. Something to talk about, gossip about, be totally shocked by. Can you believe that girl just played that well? For the record, Clara wasn't just a great composer for a woman. 
She was a great composer, period. Her work is powerful and full of harmonic surprises. Robert Schumann wasn't the only musical genius in their relationship. And that relationship, it's just about to get started. The tangled situation begins when a teenage Clara comes back from one of their performance tours after being away for months. And Robert Schumann looks at her. Oh, she's not a kid anymore. Forget that pilgrim shrine stuff. There's definitely something else there, despite the age difference. The two of them start an 1800s-era infatuation, writing letters to each other constantly, even dedicating compositions to one another, which is seriously romantic. I mean, why doesn't anyone do that anymore? But romance aside, Robert's world was a lot darker than Clara knew. He was composing and turning out new work, but his diaries tell of losing his mind, of deep fits of melancholy. Things that sound today like classic symptoms of depression. An injury to his hand made it worse. He couldn't fully play his own music. The middle finger on his right hand went completely stiff. Imagine sitting at a piano with music in your head but you can't play. Clara was the bright light for him. Smart, talented, beautiful, and capable of getting his work in front of an audience. She had the spotlight, and she could charm people in a way he just couldn't. She was perfect. I just want to say, Robert Schumann fell in love with a lot of women. Like his three sisters-in-law, maybe a wealthy married family friend. He even got engaged to one of Clara's friends and fellow piano students who also live with the Veeks. But he was done with all that now. At Clara's 16th birthday party, Robert and a bunch of friends pooled their money to buy her a gold watch. The champagne was flowing, and after dinner, Clara sat down at the piano. Her guests all around her, she put her fingers to the keys and she played one of Robert's pieces. The scherzo of his F sharp minor sonata. When I listen, I can imagine she felt his eyes on her back as she played it that night, mastering his music, playing perfectly what came out of his head. Not long after, Clara and Robert had a rare moment alone at her father's house. It was dark out. Clara offered to walk Robert down the stairs, holding a lamp. But he stopped her before they reached the bottom. He kissed her, and she nearly dropped the lamp. Clara was clearly head over heels. First kiss, first love. You'd think she'd want to run and write about it in her diary, but no. 
She's a 16-year-old girl, head spinning with all these new emotions, and she can't write down a word of it because her father still reads her diary. And Friedrich Wieck had bigger plans for Clara than marrying Robert Schumann. Clara was more than just Friedrich's daughter. She was his whole life. He'd poured all his time, all his money, all his dreams into Clara. Marriage would end her career, and Friedrich would lose his prized pet. When Friedrich found out Robert and Clara conspired to meet in secret in Dresden, he lost it. He'd always treated Clara differently from his sons. She'd escaped his rage and his threats until now. Friedrich threatened Clara. If you see Robert again, I will shoot him. And of course, he picked up her diary and wrote in it about what she'd done. After the threats, he took her away on tour. Father and daughter cooped up together for every mile of every road from town to town to town. Friedrich trashing the love of her young life. Friedrich treating her like property, his to show off. She was the talent, but he had made her. Friedrich managed to keep Clara and Robert apart for almost 18 months without a word between them. But still, when Clara sat down at the piano... she would play Robert's music. Just before Clara turned 18, she and Robert found a way to reconnect, smuggling letters back and forth through a friend. If anything, they were even more in love now. They became secretly engaged and they hatched a plan for Robert to formally ask Friedrich for permission to marry Clara. Which, after that whole threatening to shoot him and 18 months of forced silence, was a pretty bold move. They were feeling optimistic, I guess. It definitely didn't work. Friedrich Wieck said no. There was no way Robert could make enough money to support his Clara. And, he warned, marriage would end Clara's career. So Friedrich took Clara on the road again. On tour in Vienna, she wowed. She was a full-blown star. She played to sold-out concert halls. The lines to buy tickets to her shows got so out of hand, the police were called in to contain them. Diners in Vienna were sitting down to enjoy a slice of torte a la Vic, a special cake named for her. She was given the title of Royal and Imperial Chamber Virtuoso, the highest possible honor for a musician. It had only ever been given to men, until Clara. It was everything her father had ever dreamed for her. But Clara wanted something more. She wanted Robert. Friedrich refused to give permission for them to marry. He threatened to disown her, disinherit her. So Clara and Robert sued in court for the right to marry, which is where all great marriages start, right? With a lawsuit. The legal battle over Clara's future quickly turned nasty. Friedrich refused to give Clara money she'd earned performing. He tried to write her out of his will. He even tried to bill her after the fact 
for all those years of lessons. And he insulted Robert every chance he got. At one point, he called Robert's first symphony the Symphony of Contradictions, which I know it's not the best burn, but believe me, at the time, it sounded very harsh. Friedrich went after Clara, too. He wrote to people calling her a fallen, abominable, wicked girl. After a year of this very public family drama that it felt like everyone was gossiping about, Clara and Robert finally got an answer. The court sided with them. They married the day before Clara's 21st birthday. But it wasn't going to be all lovebirds and Beethoven. After the break... If life as a woman musician in the 1800s seemed difficult, wait until you put a ring on it. Hey friends, I'm Lauren Ober and I'm the host of Spectacular Failures, a new podcast where we dig into the true stories behind some of the biggest blunders in business history. Like when Kodak fumbled its own amazing invention, the digital camera. Or when Jim and Tammy Faye Baker's Christian theme park tanked because of scandal and fraud. Some of the stories are funny, some are sad, some are like, wait, what? No way! But each one will give you a totally new perspective on big business and big failure. Check us out at SpectacularFailures.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jade Simmons, and this is Decomposed. After finally getting married... Despite her father's wishes, Clara received a gift from Robert. A new diary. But wait for it. It was a diary that they would share. For some reason, Clara could not escape this weird world of invasive diary arrangements. Robert had a very specific plan for this shared diary. They'd take turns writing in it, switching off weeks, and handing it over to each other Sunday mornings at breakfast to read what the other one had written. When it was her week with the diary, she gushed about how wonderful everything was. She wrote, Father has always laughed at so-called domestic bliss. How I pity those who do not know it. They are only half alive. But Clara wasn't all in on domestic bliss. She still wanted to perform. She wanted to wow the crowds. Robert said, He'd prefer she not perform as much now that they were married. He said he wanted her to settle down, which makes me want to ask, Robert, seriously? Do you remember who you just married? Clara wasn't about to trade one man telling her what to do for another. The spring after her wedding, she took to the stage again at the Gavon house, and she did it five months pregnant. The crowd of Leipzig's finest went wild, like nothing she'd ever experienced before. And that's coming from the woman who'd had a cake named after her. (laughs) 
She soaked up the applause, the star of the show, and she played like never before. From there, she just kept going. She kept performing, kept composing, as if doing her absolute best to prove everyone wrong. She could get married and still be a musician. She could be a mother and still compose. A month before giving birth to her first child, she finished not one, not two, but three new songs. For a moment, it seemed like Clara was right. She could have it all. But Robert's career was taking off, too. The pressure was increasing. Their family was growing. And her time to herself kept shrinking. She wrote this entry in her diary, knowing full well that Robert would read it after the next Sunday morning handoff. The more Robert involves himself with his art, the less I can do as an artist. Heaven knows, there are always interruptions, and small as our household is, I always have this and that to do, and that robs me of my time. Robert felt guilty, but what was he supposed to do? Give up his work? Never going to happen. But Clara wasn't going to give up hers either. She kept touring. She made it work, but it took an army. Babysitters, wet nurses, throwing a maid. But she was making good money. She could afford it. She even played for the Danish court. She left the baby at home and she was fine. Robert, on the other hand, sank into a deep depression. He borrowed money from his friends and drank a little more than he should. Not only was the love of his life gone, so was his muse. He wrote to Clara, I feel dead without you. But as much as Robert hated when Clara was gone, he knew that her concerts paid the bills. She was an established star, while his music was still finding an audience. She could earn more in a few weeks performing than Robert did in a whole year. Despite that, Clara still had to fight for time at the piano. There were two in their house, but the walls were thin. Clara had to wait until Robert wasn't playing and the kids weren't crying and nothing else needed doing right then. She wrote in their diary, There is not even one little hour to be found in the whole day for myself. I can relate. I want to reach across time and tell Clara, I hear you. I didn't even tell my manager I was pregnant until I was six months along. I was determined not to let motherhood slow me down or change the course of my career. After having kids, I'd played a huge crowds and packed concert halls. Then I'd be right back home 48 hours later doing laundry and cooking breakfast. 
it's a fight that still doesn't have an answer. Sometimes my home life and my creative life are at odds. So I watched Clara through her diaries, and she was doing everything. Teaching music students, arranging music for Robert, editing other composers' work, overseeing music publications, taking care of a fast-growing number of kids, and something had to give. She began to compose less and less. But she would still return to it in her darkest moments. Less than four years into their marriage, Robert had a major breakdown. He was racked now with health problems, physical and mental. And at one point, he was in a panic because he thought he was going blind. Other times, he felt almost too weak to cross the room. Clara would wake up in the morning to find him soaked in his own tears. Nothing helped. Robert would compose in short bursts of creative activity, but then... He couldn't get out of bed for days. Amidst the chaos, Clara's fifth pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. She was devastated. So, she composed. Music, she'd later write, was her best distraction from pain. It was her escape. The music that came out of this brutal moment, this piano trio, it's considered to be her masterpiece. music really had a way of personifying what the soul is feeling. And she let herself feel good about her skills for a moment. There are some nice sections in the trio, she wrote. I believe that its form is rather well executed. But a year later, Robert wrote his own piano trio. And it's then that Clara, royal and imperial chamber virtuoso, began to doubt herself. After hearing Robert's trio, she changed her mind and wrote that her own trio remained, of course, the work of a woman. She now thought it lacked force and invention. Her whole life became about Robert as his health rapidly declined. 
he began to hear voices. Sometimes they were angels bringing music. Sometimes they were demons threatening him with hell. The voices tortured him, making it impossible for him to sleep. Clara must have been terrified watching what was happening to him. He started to hallucinate. He screamed in pain, thinking hyenas and tigers were attacking him. All she could do was keep the household together. Robert needed Clara more than ever. When she wasn't performing to support the family, she was at home with him. And on the rare occasions Clara was able to compose, she wrote pieces of music as presents for Robert. For his birthday, she composed variations on one of his themes. It was the last birthday they'd spent together. On a rainy Monday morning in February of 1854, Clara asked her oldest daughter Marie, only 12, to watch her father while she spoke with the doctor. But Robert wandered out of the house in just slippers and a housecoat. It was the middle of carnival celebrations and the streets were filled with people in costumes. So maybe nobody noticed the man in his robe. He ran through the crowds and stopped at the top of a bridge over the Rhine. Then he threw himself over the edge. But he didn't die. Some fishermen pulled him out of the water. Bystanders walked him home. No one told Clara what had happened. Just a couple of days later, he was admitted to an asylum, a long train ride away. The doctors at the asylum wouldn't let Clara visit Robert. They were convinced seeing her would only make his condition worse. It was now Clara's responsibility alone to support her family. With medical bills piling up, too, friends and fans from all over wrote to Clara offering to help. Someone even tried to put on a benefit concert for Clara and her kids. But Clara really hated the idea. She rejected that plan in a letter, writing, I will never allow anyone to give a concert for me. That I will do for myself when it is necessary. That's exactly what she did. Clara began to tour relentlessly. In one six-month period, she performed in 21 different cities. She was filled with worries and longing, she wrote, but also a desperate need to provide. And there was nobody stopping her now. Only now am I fully aware of how splendid it is to be an artist. Clara wrote to a friend, as my suffering and joy become expressed in divine music. As she played in city after city, Robert was getting worse, tucked away from the world. Clara wasn't allowed to visit. This went on for almost two years, Clara getting updates only by letter, Clara never seeing Robert. Finally, Knowing he might not live out the year, she ignored the doctors and went to see her husband. She was turned away the first two times she visited, but finally she convinced them to let her see Robert. She found him in his room, barely conscious. 
He died two days later, at age 46. Clara outlived Robert by 40 years. But in that time, she composed just one more piece. Her romance in B minor. Looking at this timeline, it's tempting to think that Clara's composing slowed and eventually stopped entirely because Robert was gone. But I think the story is more complicated than that. Clara toured and performed almost nonstop after Robert's death. And slowly, she started to think about her career differently. She began to think of herself as an interpreter of work rather than a composer. In a letter from her touring years, she writes, I may not be a creative artist, but still, I am recreating. And the times were changing along with Clara. Back when she was a child prodigy, pianists were expected to compose. But 40 years later, that wasn't the case. The performer and the composer could be separate now and appreciated in their own right. Clara Schumann was one of the first to memorize the music for a recital. Thanks a lot, Clara. Setting the standard for piano performance that we still follow today. She's also remembered as an important interpreter of other people's music. Not just her husband's, but Beethoven's and Brahms. Who knows how much she's responsible for their legacies? I mean, she's like the ultimate influencer for this era in music. Some people even think that Robert's music would not be remembered today without Clara promoting and playing it almost her whole life. She was determined that the world remember Robert Schumann's name. And she succeeded. She toured and toured. And she made his music famous. But one evening, near the end of her life, at the St. James Hall in London, she decided to do something different. Something rare. Clara took the stage. She'd done this a thousand times before. She was 66 now, maybe moving a little slower than she had before. Her gray hair was pulled back, her fingers at the keys. I picture her there on that stage after all she'd lived through, still up there playing. And it makes me think of a line from her diary, which she wrote years before. She said, I once believed I had creative talent. But I have given up this idea. A woman must not wish to compose. There never was one able to do it. Am I intended to be the one? It would be arrogant to believe that. Oh, it guts me to read that, to know that she felt that way. But this night in London, at this concert, she didn't play just Robert's music. She didn't just play the work of others. She sat down and she played Variations, Opus 20. Her own music. A piece she'd never played before in public. A piece that she'd composed, despite the doubting and the critiques and the expectations of what a woman could and couldn't do. That night as she played... I like to think she believed she could be the one. 
and she made space for those of us who followed. For a complete listing of the music you heard in this episode, go to decomposedshow.org. That's decomposedshow.org for more about the music you heard this episode. You'll also see our reading list there. For this episode, we definitely recommend Sounds and Sweet Airs, The Forgotten Women of Classical Music by Anna Beer and Clara Schumann, The Artist and the Woman by Nancy B. Reich. Decomposed is hosted by me, Jade Simmons. It's produced by Tracy Mumford and Ryan Lohr. Chris Julin is our editor. This episode was written by Elissa Dudley, Tracy Mumford, and me. Sound design by Val Kaler. Engineering by John Steele and Michael Osborne. Thanks to Elizabeth Lundy, our researcher, Ryan Katz, our fact checker, and Garrett Tiedemann for shaping the sound. The interim director of podcasts for APM is Lauren D. Decomposed is made possible by Inspired by You, NPR's capital campaign, and the generosity of Ruth and John Huss. Much of the music featured is courtesy of Naxos of America Incorporated. Decomposed is a public radio podcast that is supported by your donations. This show and shows like it only happen with your support. Donate today to hear more shows like this from APM Podcasts. Give today at decomposed.org slash donate.